do you want to still do the intro? I would like you to start the podcast episode. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Uh, I was about to end the podcast. (laughs) Let's try it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Res with your two hosts, me, Daniel, and my good friend, Riley. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about one of our favorite games to have played in a long time. It's called The Secret of Monkey Island, and it was brought forth by my valiant co-host, and he will begin with a short introduction. So take it away. So, wait, you, you said one of our favorite games? I did. Really? Well, okay. I didn't know this is one of your favorite games that you've played in a while. We can always get around to why that is. But Are you are you being coy? No. I will also mention that this is doubly confusing because this is not the first time we've tried to record this podcast. We did normally the way that we structure things is we want to come without really knowing a lot about what we think of what we're going to talk about. So in this case, we would have come after just playing The Secret of Monkey Island and just kind of throughout how we normally go through things revealed our feelings about it. But things are slightly colored because this is our second time trying to record the episode. We did mess up the first recording a little bit. So if that's what you're referring to. No, I mean, I'm just, I guess, surprised. Yes, we were re-recording this episode, so we kind of already know how each other feel, but I didn't get the feeling that maybe this was one of your favorite games in in recent memory. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, the way, what Daniel's saying is that uh, normally in an episode, uh, we will both have done things on our own. And we're not really discussed any of the particulars of our opinions with one another before coming to the show. That's what we did for the initial recording, but we uh, messed up that audio. So, we're going to re-record. This is also our first episode, so there's probably... That was probably a mistake. <laughs> to Everybody say. make mistakes. We have flaws. We're not perfect. Hopefully, because it's your job to do all of the editing... You can make it seem as though I am coherent, when I sometimes will not be. So. Yeah, go for it. Tell us a little bit about uh, The Secret of Monkey Island and why you chose it as the very first thing for us to to go through. Sure. Um, So The Secret of Monkey Island, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this game uh, that are listening, but it is a video game. It was released in 1990 by Lucas Games. And it was designed by three guys, Ron Gilbert, Dave Grossman, and Tim Schafer, all of whom kind of after this developed a very impressive pedigree of of games. I think a lot of people nowadays really know who Tim Schafer is if if they pay attention to video gaming that much. Yeah. 
but Ron Gilbert and Dave Grossman are also both very important people in game development. So they've, you know, they've worked on games like Maniac Mansion, uh, The Day of the Tentacle, Grim Fandango, Freddy Fish, Pajama Sam. Dave Grossman helped start up uh, Telltale, which went on to do all The Walking Dead and all The Batman and whatever you think of those things, the billion video game spinoffs that have become Telltale franchises. Uh, Dave yeah. Grossman helped start that, so he's he's pretty important. And then Tim Schafer, of course, doing things like Psychonauts, uh, Broken Age, uh, some of the most successful video game Kickstarters in recent history. I actually did not know he did Broken Age. I don't even remember. I You might have said it last time, but that's really cool. That's That guy's also been on my list for a while because it's... Mm. It's supposed, I think our, our good friend, uh, oh, I can't remember what name we came up for him last time, so I'll just say Armand, um, spoke very highly of it, and it's it's got a little bit of, like, tactical flair in there, too, which is interesting, so. Yeah, so it's these three guys that, like, they, they've got a good repertoire of point-and-click adventure games under their belt, and the secret of Monkey Island, in a lot of ways, is is what started that, is what established them in that arena. So it came about because Ron Gilbert originally was fed up, he says, with most contemporary adventure games. Um, back in the, in the 90s, in the very early 90s, late 80s, most adventure games that existed were either text-based or were um, mainly text interactive. And what I mean by that is it's the classic description of you are in a cave, you see a door at the end of the cave, there's a light on the tunnel, what do you do? And then a text prompt comes up and you say, uh, walk to door. So they were either that kind of game, or they were that kind of game plus some small graphical representation of what was going on in the world around you. Like maybe there would be a, a JPEG of a cave that you would see. Yeah. And then you would say, go to door. And then there would be a bad JPEG of a door. Uh, in front of you, but it would all still be kind of interactive with typing and text commands. The thing about those games is they were very light on story for the most part, storytelling and thematic elements like characters and narrative and plot didn't really exist. And they were also very unforgiving. Uh, a lot of those games were, were super hard um, and you would very easily die and go back all the way to the beginning and Unless there was some sort of procedural element, which there wasn't in a lot of these things, you just type all the same commands over again to get back to where you were to hopefully figure out the right sequence of events to prevent yourself from dying. So there's a lot of frustration, I think, that comes with, with games like that. I know I wouldn't want to play those. There's only so much you can work with there, I feel like. So I can see that, like, if you're only working through things, just picking and choosing exactly what you want to interact with and what you want to do with them without any boundaries. Yeah. You're not going to be able to tell nearly as cohesive of a story because it'll mm -hmm. take them like ages to even get the right command that to go forward. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also see why you can get stuck that way or you just can't go down the right branch. Exactly. Yeah. It creates a ton of challenges around pacing and around difficulty that, I think are very hard to surmount. So that was kind of Ron Gilbert's motivation looking around at all these, these adventure games back then. So he said, he, you know, I'm going to make a game that is, is nothing like this, that 
you the player can't die but there's very limited interaction uh, in terms of like command flexibility and focus more on telling a little story and injecting some humor and having some character development and some plot some plot that happens um, and that happened in 1987 with his first game that he released called Maniac Mansion. Fast forward three years later, he was working on another game with Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer, who at the time were pretty young, new guys in the video game industry, and they had taken some of the tools from the original Maniac Mansion game and used them to start building a new adventure game. Uh, and that game was The Secret of Monkey Island. Now, after this game came out in 1990, it, it really revolutionized adventure games at the time. And adventure games are a really interesting genre because they've changed a whole lot since their inception. You know, going from those, those really early text-based adventures through kind of the point-and-click era to now we've got some really interesting modern takes on, on the point-and-click. Maybe some less interesting ones like the Telltale games where... There are not really any puzzles, and you're more just like talking your way through a story. And then some of the more involved ones, like an Uncharted, um, which is a full 3D action adventure game. Um, so the the genre has has really blossomed into a lot of different possibilities, and a lot of that can, I think, in some ways, be traced back to to this this blossoming out in the the early 90s of adventure games, thanks to The Secret of Monkey Island. Right. So in some ways, it kind of became a tip of the spear for a golden age of point-and-click adventure games that lasted until the early 2000s. And I think in in more recent years, uh, since like 2014 or so, we've been seeing a little bit of a resurgence of point-and-click adventures, um, trying to go back and, and capture some of the, the good elements that those old games had without a lot of the negative ones that I'm sure we'll get into as we talk. So that's kind of the context around... Monkey Island, uh, and when it was released, and, and kind of what it means in video gaming. Uh, a lot of people have a very favorable opinion of it, just because of how iconic it is, and, and kind of what it did for both people who played games and people who wanted to develop games back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So, as far as the actual game itself is concerned, it is the story of a young man named Guybrush Threepwood. Uh, whose name we are never going to say wrong this episode. All right, I've already planned all the ways I will say it correctly. Great. Can, uh, do you have any examples of how you're going to say it correctly? Uh, Gorn, try hard. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's, uh, that's a good one to start with. Uh, okay. Garrett. No last name, just Garrett. Um. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want you to like exhaust your whole list here and now. Exactly. Exactly. Clearly, you've put a lot of work into it. So you play as Benedict Cumberbatch. There we go. A young man who wants to be a pirate. That's the very first thing he says when he shows up on screen. Hi, my name is Guybrush Threepwood, and I want to be a pirate. Uh, he arrives on Melee Island and tries to find the nearest pirate crew to sign up with. And he learns that all of the ocean 
around Melee Island is under the rule of the ghost pirate, LeChuck. And all of the pirates that are on Melee Island are afraid to go out and do piratey things. So his, his arc, his story, is all about becoming a pirate and defeating LeChuck uh, in that process. That's, that's kind of what the game is about. And the way that you play this point-and-click adventure game primarily is through pointing and clicking, but if you've never seen it before, there's uh, the upper two-thirds of the screen are kind of a rendered image of where you are in the game world of Guybrush, wherever he's standing, whatever's around him, whether that's the inside of a bar or a jungle or, or what have you, and that's where you can click around and move your character and, and move to things to interact and to talk to. And then on the lower third of the screen, it's kind of divided up into two halves. On the left lower third quadrant is an array of nine buttons, and these say things like open, talk to, uh, push, pull, your, your actions that you can do. And then the uh, bottom right half of that lower third is your inventory, so all of the various items that you pick up along your journey. Um, that you can can use on on things in the environment or combine together to accomplish certain tasks. And so that's really the the setup of the game itself. And then the primary gameplay mechanism behind all of this is puzzles. So unlike you know action adventure games, a lot of times that are more about moving and shooting, point and click adventure games tend to be more about solving specific environmental or character driven puzzles. Um, getting the right item to the right person at the right time, that kind of stuff. Right. So that's kind of a, a very high-level setup of the game. And Daniel, I'm really interested in your experience playing. I know you said at the beginning this is one of your favorite games in recent memory. Why? Why do you feel that way? So a lot of the context that I was able to gain from our first episode does affect this a little bit. Um, mm. because I did feel like I had some things, especially early on that made it difficult for me. I should say mm -hmm. up front that I hadn't played a game like this really before. I hadn't even really played a lot of modern adventure games that much. Just a, just a few things kind of sprinkled throughout, but I've been a lot more into shooters and the occasional strategy game. Um, which brings a lot of different things that you're working through or a lot of different priorities. It's usually mm -hmm. either a lot of shoot man, kill, boom, 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 or it's like clicky, 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 snap, snap, clicky, clicky, clicky. Oh God, I, sh I need to look up the cheat codes for this because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as good at strategy games as I really wish I was. Um, mm. So... There was, there was quite a few things that made it not difficult, but things that I had to learn, especially after a lot of the things that I learned about games that were that came before The Secret of Monkey Island. Um, it made me really appreciate how solid the original release was. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the tone of the game, which is very important for this kind of storytelling it's most of the game is storytelling and i've 
I've played games before that felt like they might take themselves too seriously. And they have their place, but not always. Especially something that, that's this unrealistic. It really worked for me. Um, mm. And unrealistic in the graphical sense. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So having like a really casual tone, not taking itself too seriously, often self-referential, often fourth wall breaking, made it so that way, okay, I can really get into this even though I haven't done it before. I don't have to really think hard about like a bunch of stats and how they what they how they fit into the world like like some more dense RPGs might be. I don't have mm-hmm. to think about like I, I don't have to try to think like a real pirate. I could just I could just take what I'd know in the game and use that as my as my sandbox. Mm-hmm. Without getting too spoilery, there's there's because we'll we'll get into a lot more of those details later in the episode. There's tons of things that you just have happen on screen or happen in dialogue early in the game that are the real basis for solving the puzzles. And so I appreciated that. It was very self-contained because it wasn't taking itself too seriously. And then I feel like the the third thing that really made it uh, a worthwhile playthrough for me is that it is pirate-themed. And you know this about me. I'm a big fan of a lot of other pirate properties, I guess. Intellectual properties. IPs. I mean, I have I have properties all over these aisles. <laughs> I, I think properties is a good way to refer. I was thinking of the word memorabilia, but no, properties is is way better. You don't have that much pirate memorabilia lying around. No, no, I just have a um, a closet full of Pirates of the Spanish Main. I actually don't own any Pirates of the Caribbean. That's with my parents. I kind you of don't realize that any of those movies. I really need to, in hindsight. Huh interesting a lot of other things i've gotten to experience throughout like growing up were pirate related they didn't all have to take themselves seriously as well but still it's just a it's just such a it's such a different world to put yourself in compared to how things work today it's it's utter chaos anarchy but ships uh, there's there's drinking, there's cannons, there's sword fighting. It's it's just a fun world to set something in, and so that works really well for me as well. That's I I really think it's interesting how much you enjoyed pirates. Yeah, because knowing you in real life, rabble rousery and carousing and drinking and doing pirate things don't seem to be among your interests i would agree (laughs) (laughs) so is this like a vicarious interest that you've got that's probably where it comes from Mm -hmm. like i like i said it's it's not something that you get to live all the time and i i also am not naive i know that being a real pirate back in the back in the age of sail was like probably horrible but the fantasy right. that we've created is is pretty dope. Like <laughs> Exactly. 
Yeah, it's like watching all of the the bank heist movies and thinking like, oh my god, I want to be in a bank heist. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's so cool. Everything about it is so cool. And then you realize it's not real. Yeah. It's a wonder that that Battlefield Hardline didn't catch on more. Because that's kind of the same kind of fantasy. I think Payday 2 kind of had that player base already covered. That's that's true. That's true. I forgot about them. But we're not here to talk about Payday or yeah. Player Unknown's Battlefront. Oh my god. <laughs> so this episode is uh irrelevant in 2 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I I feel like I've spilled the beans about how I felt about the game so far. Um mm. how did you feel about it? You know, I just I I don't want to I'm not dodging the question. I will answer it. But I do think it's really interesting the way that you the way that you were just talking about this game. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it sounds like that this game to you was more about fun, like actual just good natured fun um, than mm-hmm. it is about like optimizing stats or trying to be the best player or, you know, achieving achieving something that a lot of these other like shooters and uh, and strategy games incentivize you do achieve it's fun but in a different way for those games and what i think this game really captures is a lot of just good old-fashioned fun yeah something that i don't think we've talked about but we had been talking about in the first recording is that yes i don't always optimize for those things and this is even an instance where i didn't optimize for those things Mm. for various reasons i one didn't complete the game two i i spent way longer on a lot of parts than most players will because i'm either picking at at various points and like really trying to explore more than than the average player does or i'm getting stuck on things and i'm okay with that so yes i i do agree with that i i think that's really cool um that that's kind of the experience you got to have with it because i think that's one of the things that i love about this game so much to me Playing The Secret of Monkey Island is like watching good stand-up comedy. It's so mm-hmm. funny. It's so like self-aware. It puts you in on the joke the whole time. The puzzles are, are by and large, pretty straightforward uh, as far as, like, once you've, you've had the aha moment, it's usually the right thing. Like, it's usually the right solution. Um, I think a lot of adventure games are known for having completely ridiculous puzzles and that happened kind of after the age of monkey island monkey island has some puzzles in it that are not obvious but once you figure it out uh you've really figured it out unlike a lot of i I think other point and click adventure games where you just end up spending your entire time combining all of your inventory with all of your other inventory in an exploding combinatorial fashion yeah because who knows what's going to work right you feel like this game wasn't trying to trip you up at all. It was it was trying to to make that really streamlined, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it uh it lets you feel clever at your own pace, which is is fun. And I just think that it is it's not a very long game, so by most standards at least it's the average playtime is about 7 hours. It can be much much shorter. Obviously, if you know what you're doing, but on a, on a first or a second run through, it's not an intractably long game. 
I do think that it is, in a lot of ways, the design decisions that were made with the game, they, I think, reflect the time that it was made in. Yeah. And the climate that it was made in was about just having a good time. Yeah. So I, I love it for, for all of those reasons. I love the characters that are in it. I, I love how silly everything is, how how absurd it all is. But in the end, it's still nicely wrapped up in a fun story. Can I kind of have you expand on that a little bit in the context of a lot of those issues with adventure games that The Secret of Monkey Island tried to address? Do you feel like it was successful in solving the problem of uber difficult games, easy to die, difficult to navigate, those those sorts of points that you were making earlier? I think it does do some of those things by explicit intention um, on on the part of the designers. Like, you, there's only one spot in the game that you can die, and every other section of the game is completely safe for the player, totally harmless. So you're not in any sort of peril where if you click the wrong thing, Guybrush is going to explode in a ball of flames or get eaten by a bear or you <laughs> know, all the stuff that happens in these these yeah. text adventure games. That's not really where the gameplay motivation lies. The The gameplay motivation is more about, like I said, finding out what the next joke is, really, at, at its <laughs> core, I think. That's what keeps people interested in it. And so because of that, the difficulty is, is not high. Um, there are some puzzles that are pretty confusing, and there are some moments that are incredibly infuriating um, if you don't know what to do just because of some of the artifacts of the time. You know, for as good of a game as it is, nobody makes a perfect game, and so there are some things that that these three guys, I don't think, knew were going to be frustrating when they made this game back in the 90s. Some yeah, spots where you have to do some pixel hunting and that kind of stuff, but every game has problems, and, and this game does not have egregious issues. So I think, by and large, the difficulty is much lower because the thing that's keeping people involved isn't I don't think necessarily uh, solving the puzzles. It's seeing how progressing through puzzles is going to affect the characters and the narrative. It's it's wondering what silly thing is going to happen whenever I finally you know figure out how to cross this bridge or or get this thing or you know find this treasure. So I think in the in those ways it succeeds in really dispelling this like fog of kind of like you were saying games that that take themselves seriously and that demand that the player take it seriously so that way they can really achieve something by the end of the game and whatever this game's much more just about having a good time so was there something else in that question that you that you had that i didn't address i was asking if you feel like it helped to solve a lot of the the problems and i i do think that you addressed it you were saying that that because it focused on just guiding you through its its story and taking away a lot of the barriers that that delivered it to you it ultimately succeeded in a lot of those those places where others had failed and that makes sense to me so tell me you said earlier though that obviously this is the second time we're talking about this game that your opinion maybe changed a little bit after our first discussion 
of the yes. game. What did you think the first time that you that you played through it, and what about your opinion changed? I guess have, after having uh, some more context. So you mentioned pixel hunting as being something that it did still suffer from in a few situations, and mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that. I didn't finish the game and I took a lot longer to do it. Very early on, I didn't realize that part of the world was there. (laughs) (laughs) Which, uh, I don't believe it's too much of a spoiler to say that there's a town. Yeah, do you want to kind of describe the the whole, like, map layout versus in in location layout that the game shows you as a player? Yeah, sure. So there's, there's, uh, I'm trying to count really. There's basically two ways that you're represented in the game. I say that because it's more complicated than that, but basically two. (laughs) Just counting like the really weird, uh, close-ups of people's faces. Yeah, exactly. I just okay. that's <laughs> those are strange. <laughs> they're strange, but they're they're honestly they're actually quite they're they're actually quite good pieces of art for the time. I feel like um, anyway, we'll get there later in the episode. Um, there's basically two ways that you are represented in the game. There's either like this overworld where you're able to kind of click around a map that represents the island. Or, well, there's, I guess there's two islands. The islands that you're playing on. Um, and that moves Guybrush to a different section where you do get to walk around in that, in that more clicky realm that you were describing earlier. Where it's kind of from the side and mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to try to figure out where in the world are the different Things that you need to interact with, things you need to pick up, people you need to talk to, etc. It's kind of like the audience's view of a stage play. Yes, that's a really good way to think of it. One of the really big sections of Melee Island is a is the town. I don't I don't actually remember if they say do they say the name of the town ever? So I don't wanna get like crucified for getting any details wrong yeah (laughs) i'm gonna say no i don't think they ever named the town yeah yeah i think i think you can just walk in there's no population sign this is very interesting yeah (laughs) but there's kind of different sections that you walk through because you like a stage you can't fit the whole thing on the screen at one time and to go from section to section, you have to walk to the side of the screen, or in the case of the section I missed, you have to click on an archway to <laughs> tell Guybrush <laughs> to walk down that way. Very simple. A caveman could do it. I must have misclicked the archway that goes to the governor's mansion and the the chapel and the prison, that section of the town, because I did not, I, I did not think I could go that way. I thought it was kind of blocked off from me. Mm-hmm. Right. What you're talking about is that 
Some of the screen transitions are triggered by you going clicking left or right on the screen, while others are like you clicking into a place like yes, this archway. Exactly. Yeah. And because of because of me misclicking probably and not figuring out that I could go that way and because of a few other situations outside of the town where it actually does prevent you from going to places because you're not ready, I thought mm -hmm. that I just couldn't go there. So very early on, I figured out that Guybrush has to do three things. He has to find the treasure of Mela Island. He has to pilfer the idol or steal the idol from the governor's mansion. And he has to defeat the sword master. I thought, wow, that's a lot of things. I don't have a lot of room to work with here, so <laughs> how on earth do I do this? So it took me three hours to find that section, and I still managed to go all around the map. Um, so for context, this is, I believe, when you come into the town, you've got mm -hmm. one screen where you're up at the top of the town with the lookout, yes. uh, who is blind, by the way. The, the blind lookout over Just Melee great. Island. Um, then you click into the second screen where you walk past a pier, you walk past a bar, and you walk into town. And then the third screen is where you walk into town, like the, the actual proper, think like 16th century Caribbean piratey town, Tortuga yeah. type yeah. place. Uh, you walk into there... And this is the screen with the archway that you have to, to walk under. You have to click into the screen, walk under, uh, to continue your journey through the island. And yes. this, so this is screen number three. <laughs> so whatever you, uh, whatever you enumerate it, yeah, it sounds so bad. <laughs> it's not, I'm not trying to like shame you for getting stuck on screen number three. I'm trying to illustrate that there is really not that much of the game unlocked for you at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so you would absolutely have a hard time accomplishing anything in those three screens. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. Um, all of this to say that it affected me a little bit whenever I, whenever we were first talking about the game. It made it so that way I, I had to learn even the smallest, simplest things about adventure games. And I had messed up or mm. the game had failed a little bit in how it got me there. I know that it was probably a fairly singular situation, but there's still a chance that other players could have had the same issue. So I know yeah. that. I know that that was something that that made me less enthused about it. However, even last time we talked about it, the rest of the game after I got the hang of it was still quite cool. And we'll talk about a lot of the reasons why that is later. But it was still there's still a lot of very good things about the genre that were showcased in the game. So I want to say two things real quick. One, we keep saying later, um, there is a... a spoiler cutoff in these episodes i don't know that we made this clear at the very beginning probably we because did. we thought we said it and you know, we said it in the first recording this is the second recording by the way we're re-recording the first episode <laughs> for all of you who anyway uh all so the people we're have in the spoiler 
Yeah, all the people who haven't stopped listening yet. We're in the spoiler-free <laughs> section of our discussion of The Secret of Monkey Island. There will come a time in the future where we unleash all the spoilers. And this will be a pattern for every episode. Whatever it is we're reviewing, you're safe to listen for the first 40 or 45 minutes before we really start getting into specifics about the story or the, the details of whatever it is we're talking about. So The, the deets. The, the deets. I wanted to clarify that. Uh, the second thing yeah. I wanted to say is, is about genre conventions, which I think is really interesting. So you said that... You know, maybe it's a one-off thing that you had this problem. Maybe not everybody has this problem uh, of of not knowing that you can click into the screen, right? It's not very well uh, illustrated for you. And I have to mention that we were playing this on the original graphics mode. Yes. Um, so the Secret of Monkey Island has a remastered edition that we've bought because that's the only thing you can buy on Steam. Um, and there's, there's kind of an original uh, pixelated graphics mode. And then there's a more modern, like, full... Uh, art mode that takes away the the bottom bar and the inventory and all this stuff and I think might be a little bit more clear in some situations so yes we were playing on the old mode um, where the backgrounds look very static and it's kind of hard to tell I do want to confess one thing to you though what do you want to confess to me since the first time we recorded it and Mm -hmm. we decided that we wanted to or at least for me, wanted to try and make more progress in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I did switch it over to new graphics for a little bit. What did you think? I understand why they made some of the changes that they did. Mm-hmm. However, this is the this is going to be the dumbest old man thing I ever said. But I think I prefer the old way they did it. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is weird because the old way is is trash looking it's so pixely <laughs> but there's a few things that they did better with the old way they did it to me like what? one the actions and the inventory are always visible mm-hmm. i liked that a lot more mm-hmm. i think it's nice to have the immersive you know full i, I guess i should say exactly what they did in the in the remastered in the old version of the game, the nine actions are on the bottom kind of left corner of your screen. And the inventory is on the bottom right corner of your screen. Always. Yep. And that that does a few things for me. One, it makes it that way for kind of nervous players like myself. I can always see the inventory to like remind me where I am. I can always see the actions to kind of like prime me for whenever I'm trying to make a decision or solve a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And if I need to like, if I need to do some complicated trials, like use X with Y or give X to person, it's a lot easier to do that with the old way they did it. In Mm -hmm. the new way they did it, both of those things have to they're hidden away and you have to press a key to bring them up. Right. They're in like context menus. Yeah. And I actually didn't like that as much. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I did, I did think that a lot of the graphical improvements were nice, 
some of them make it more clear which building does what because they've added more detail. Um, and I think, like you were kind of hinting at earlier, it might they might have solved a, a few of the communication issues, like with the archway. It's a lot more obvious that this is a way yeah. to go. What does the archway look like in the, the remastered version? Is it more like, is there like a light at the end of that tunnel? Like, what do they do to get you to click on it? I actually can't remember exactly. I just know that it was more prevalent. Um, okay. And because we're recording with Audacity, I dare not try to open the game right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we don't want to jeopardize the second recording <laughs> yeah. before it's even over. <laughs> the last thing I was going to say about the new graphics, and I actually would be curious if you felt the same thing. I don't know if you saw them. But mm -hmm. most of the characters were superior Except for Guybrush. He looks like a total twat. <laughs> yeah, they really make him look like a dweeb. Maybe that's part of the design for him, that he's not supposed to look like anything special. <laughs> he looks like, oh god, are you trying to are you trying to make me as the player feel like this? Right. I don't know. Exactly. So I actually wanted to bring this up because and we're getting kind of far away from the genre conventions, but I'm going to come back to that. Yeah, sure. The the way that they changed Guybrush in the remastered version is what ruins it for me, personally. Wow. It, for two reasons, right? They they Like you said, they changed the way he looks. So in the original pixel art game, he just looks like a regular old dude. He looks like the most average white guy with brown eyes, brown hair except dressed in pirate clothes um and so he's like the for i don't want to get into like charged social issues but for a lot of people <laughs> playing the game in the 90s he was a an avatar that somewhat was identifiable in the remaster version they make him like this scrawny like slim neck big huge like cartoonishly large face and nose weird hairstyle like he's just absolutely the most strange looking human being <laughs> he, he he looks as as strange as his name sounds right yeah. so that's one thing that i don't like is he kind of takes away your sort of the player's connection to Guybrush as a character in the game by making him more specific. And I know this happens in other games, like like in Halo, you know, they say the reason why they never show Master Chief's face is so that the player can imagine themselves as Master Chief more easily. I think that's kind of a similar effect that's happened here with Guybrush. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, and I think this is way, like, yes, the way he looks is ridiculous. They gave him a voice. Oh, I wasn't even playing with the audio. Oh, no. He's voiced. All of the characters are voiced in the remaster. And that... His voice is... Is the, like, most annoying... You start with Michael Sarah's voice and you make it more annoying. <laughs> Sorry, and Michael And that's Sarah. the voice they use. Sorry, Michael Sarah, if you're listening. <laughs> they use it for Guybrush. And it just, it completely ruins, I think, the character because as a player, you can read him however you like. You know, whenever you, your, your parents read you stories, bedtime stories as a kid, they do all the funny voices for the characters. And I think that's what 
people do in their heads whenever they play through Monkey Island is they give every person a unique voice, a unique characterization. But by them characterizing Guybrush and making his voice like this socially awkward, completely honest, like rooted in the game world guy, it ruins so much of the fourth wall breaking and the self-awareness that he has yeah. um, throughout the story. It just that's why I insisted that we played it on the original graphics mode at the beginning uh, yeah. of, of this whole experience, because I think that's where the intention of the game really is is best showcased. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I don't necessarily... I don't maybe hate him as much, because I didn't play on the audio, or I didn't play with the audio on, which mm-hmm. is a real sentence. <laughs> So I only got I only got half of the experience. It, it might be worth you just trying it for a second, because I think that's one of the questions that you have as a player originally is like, what's his voice really like? And then yeah. when you hear it, you're like, I didn't want to know that. <laughs> I want to clean my head. Yeah. But all of this kind of comes a little bit from the question you had earlier on uh, genre conventions. Yeah. So I, I wanted to say like, you know, you say that the whole experience of, of missing the archway is maybe unique to you. I think that there is a sort of learning curve uh, for the genre conventions of point-and-click adventure games that is inescapable. And if you are able to get over those initial humps of, as a player, having to learn what you can click on, basically learn what the game systems generally allow, then it's like the, it's like every single point-and-click adventure game becomes accessible and fun. Whereas, until you really do the first one, it's kind of this weird, baroque puzzle box that doesn't make much sense, I think. Yeah. And I think the reason maybe that I had a different experience with Monkey Island than you on my first playthrough, uh, except for one part, the, the fish. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Growing up, I played, and I didn't even know this until I was doing the the pre-show research for this episode, but I played so many Ron Gilbert uh, and Dave Grossman adventure games like Putt-Putt, like Freddy Fish, like Pajama Sam. I loved those games. They were all point-and-click adventure games for kids. And so I think I spent a lot of time with those games learning the genre conventions, and so by the time I got to Monkey Island and sat down and played it, it was kind of intuitive to me how to navigate these worlds whereas i think it's really interesting your experience and probably the experience of i would say not just you know you maybe the thing that got you was the archway but i would think almost everybody who's playing an adventure game a point and click adventure game for the first time has that moment where they just don't understand what's going on in the game world yeah so then maybe because of that extra experience, you can say that it's it's something that you should bank on if if this is your first adventure game or if any of those other precursors to this adventure game is your first foray into the genre. There's going to be some some mistakes that you make early on that you got to get through to get to the experience of the game. Would you say that's fair? 
Yeah, I'd absolutely say that that's fair. Like, it takes time to develop an intuition about what to click on without just clicking everything on the screen. And that's what you do for a lot of your first point-and-click adventure games, is you just click on everything. Yeah. <laughs> and even that being said, there are games that, if you've played a dozen point-and-click adventure games, you'll still pick up, like, Gemini Ru, that even if you're very experienced, you can have no idea what the game wants you to do. Yeah. Um, so I think that might be also one of the reasons why Monkey Island is such a popular game is because it's not for kids, it's for adults, but it is still, by and large, uh, pretty devoid of a lot of those moments where it's hard to understand what you can do. Yeah. Um, but there, there will always be some some slip-ups whenever you're learning how to play these games. They have a super good understanding of uh, how far to push the player and still keep them into the game and not angry at the game. So I actually have a video that I want us to watch about puzzle design because I think that that's you know, perfectly related with what you just said um, in point-and-click adventure games. Um, so in the in the show notes here, the very first video we've got this point and click puzzle design. Uh, go ahead and open that one up and let's let's watch that real quick. There were a lot of examples that he had in there that just flashed across the screen, but seemed to be obviously made using the same engine as the Secret of Monkey Island. So that's probably a good sign. <laughs> the the video that we just watched, and we'll link to it in our show notes if we figure out how to do that um is by the wonderful mark brown of game makers toolkit his channel is absolutely awesome on youtube you could spend i don't know how many hours of content it is but that many number of hours learning a lot about video games um so this video was about good puzzle design in point and click adventures was there anything yeah. like what what did you think of the video um, I'd actually seen a few of his programs before, and he explains things well. I think that his points made some sense. Signposting, I think, which was rule number two, was probably the thing that I have the least comfort with, I guess, if I were to, if I were to have to try to implement it myself in a game. Mm-hmm. It feels like the place that can really make or break the point-and-click adventure, or the adventure game in general. Mm -hmm. If you're not able to, to subtly enough, slash not too subtly, guide the players to where they need to go, mm -hmm. then a lot of things can fall apart. Luckily, I think that The Secret of Monkey Island does a pretty decent job of that except for some of the early genre uh, definitional things that I had to deal with when I first started playing the game. So, yeah. I think that they're pretty solid rules. Obviously, there are three rules. There are always three of things. Yep. Um, honestly, I feel as though the first rule and the second rule could probably be combined, but... The first rule being clear goals. Yes, exactly. I think that the signposting is basically 
the clever way that you remind the player what those goals are. Hmm. Okay. I thought signposting was also like a way to show clues about how to achieve the goals. Yeah, that's true. A lot of the things, though, that actually get you to that point are are just defining where you're trying to go in the first place. And that's how you get a good, logical solution to the puzzle, right? Because if you define what it is, hindsight, you'll be able to see exactly how you should get there. Rule number one, the whole clear goals thing of, of telling you exactly what the end state of here's what solved looks like. Yeah. Um, and then signposting is kind of like the the goals within goals of here's how to break that puzzle down. And here's so the first thing you should go do. And then here's the second thing you should go do. Um, like leading players along accomplishing yeah. smaller tasks. Uh, I totally agree with you. It's really hard to do signposting well, I think. Because if it's too obvious, then it's not a puzzle. And if it's too obscured, then people are just going to get frustrated. So it's a very fine line to walk. One, I imagine you have to do a lot of playtesting to find. I can't even fathom what it would have taken to playtest to playtest something like this. Mm-hmm. Anytime that, that we have made games together in the past, we've, we've I think, very deliberately tried to design... Um, systems more than stories because we knew that it was something that we could execute on better. Um, it's it's really easy to, to accidentally introduce like something really devastating to the player if, mm-hmm. if it's all built on top of each other like, like uh, these kinds of games are. So it, it makes perfect sense to me why even some of the greatest... I saw Grim Fandango on there. I saw Gemini Rue. I saw this Broken Age. All of these games that people still really admire, he has things that he can point to about them where they didn't, they didn't do the best job following the guidelines that he's put out. Because it's hard. It's very hard. And it's all, you know, the third, the third guideline that he kind of talks about is good feedback to the player about as you are making your way down this this signposted journey towards your goal, how is the game letting you know that other than, you know, maybe unblocking a pathway or, or like really clear things like combining items and getting an item that you know that you need? How are the characters telling you? Uh, how is the yeah. how's the narrative reflecting back to you that you're, you're doing the right thing? And that's another one of those just like very precise, I think, dial to tune where you don't want to be too handholdy, you don't want to be too obvious, um, but you can't be too obscure. And I think that's that's the line to draw in a lot of these puzzle games, specifically. I don't know, maybe maybe I think that people are more unique than they are, and that it's hard to make a game that's tuned well for everybody, but that's kind of my impression of it. You're saying that uh, people aren't going to always respond as intended to how you're guiding them through those problems like how you're exactly how you're giving feedback yeah no matter where you set the difficulty it's going to be too hard for some people and way too easy for others um, Ooh, that's actually a really interesting point i don't know how this game 
uh, the Secret of Monkey Island was received through its inner through its international distributions. Mm-hmm. But even though at least we praised a lot of the the casual aspects of the game as being like really good for us, mm-hmm. I wonder if that's if that works culturally with other languages, other parts of the world. Like, all of those fourth wall breaks, do they just completely fall flat? Mm. Or do those, some of the phrases that they use to kind of jokingly tell you that you should do something different, do they work for everybody? Right. Yeah, how do you... That's a notoriously tough problem in translation, is, is idiomatic translation. Yeah. And that's what a lot of these jokes are based on, like you're saying. A lot of jokes' humor in general is hard to translate. So a game that's, you know, the puzzles are based on humor, by and large. I don't even know what the internationalization for this game would look like. There's, there's I feel like, a, a, a meme about... Not like a literal meme, but I mean like the, the scientific way to... There's this, like, I guess... Recurring joke, I'll say recurring joke, about how, like, uh, some cultures around the world, like in Japan, they can just take the American English version of something and just dial it up. Hmm. So I'm imagining, like, what a dialed up Secret of Monkey Island would have been. You mean, like, a, a Monkey Island where, like, horses can talk? Yeah. Like that kind of dialed up where like everything is taken to the nth degree and it's all very strange. Yeah. Or like there's a specific scene, the scene where the, where the character, where the player can die. Mm Mm-hmm. Where maybe they, to, to kind of like really push the point home, if they were to change it, they would have to go to some extreme lengths to, to make the joke still have the same impact. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, that's a good question. I think that's kind of a good uh, good video to have in this discussion because as we as we dig into more of these puzzles in here in a second, once we cross over the line to the spoiler full version mm-hmm. of the podcast, um, I think it's going to be useful to maybe look back on some of those clear goals, good signposting, and good player feedback qualities and see see maybe how the game stacks up so i think with that we should start transitioning into talking very freely about spoilerific content sure um that's really quick though to give our listeners a little bit of a uh, a break we're gonna do the thing that all podcasts do which is give you a reason to go to the bathroom and not listen for a few minutes uh, or just put like turn off the audio so you can talk to your coworker about something they've been pestering you about or what have you. We're going to go through our list of, uh, or not our list of, but our two non-sponsors for the episode. It has to be non-sponsors because we don't actually have any sponsors, but... To give it the real authentic podcast feel, uh, I think that we should go ahead and, you know, give them what they expect. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Every podcast has sponsors, and we don't, just like the rest of them. Obviously, like every single other podcast, this podcast is sponsored by Audible Space, the world's leading provider of spoken websites and other voice advertising entertainment. We promise that when you receive your Audible space, you will get it in a very small box. And when you open it, it expands to be the full audio-driven website that you ordered and deserve to receive. So we love our Audible space. Uh, It's not really a website, I guess, since it came out of a box, but... We love it, and you should definitely support Audible Space by using the code RES, that's R-E-S, at checkout. I'm sure that that will work. It usually always does. Our second non-sponsor for episode one of the podcast is Poltergeist, the world's first haunted mattress. Poltergeist is great. I don't get any sleep on mine. It didn't come in a box. When I ordered it, which I didn't do, it showed up in my house, unbeknownst to me, without my volition, and replaced the mattress I was already sleeping on. Poltergeist gives you a sense of dread all throughout the night. It will keep you on your toes, wide awake, praying, hoping, that sleep will come. I wish we could give you an offer code, but if Poltergeist chooses you, I'm sorry. It'll just happen. So thanks to Poltergeist for haunting the stream. Ooh, that was spooky. So we kind of mentioned a little bit at the beginning that Guybrush spawns out of the ether on an island called Melee Island, and he has declared that he wishes to be a pirate. This is setting the stage for the hilarity that ensues. He goes into the town of Melee Island, and he speaks to the important-looking pirates in the Scum Bar, with two M's. In there, he learns that he needs to do the following. He needs to find the treasure of Melee Island. He needs to steal the idol from the governor's mansion. And he needs to defeat the sword master. This is what the player is told they need to do to start the game. That will ensure that they become a pirate. Well, it gets more complicated than that. As You go through trying to achieve these goals. You learn a few things. There's this evil pirate lord named LeChuck who haunts the oceans around Malay Island that make it so that way piracy cannot happen. Also, the governor is actually a hot babe, or at least a pixely hot babe. She's a strong, independent woman. Yes, but to Guybrush, she's a hot babe. And you fall in love 
naturally, as two characters who were just only recently introduced tend to do. And then finally, you meet a few other kind of secondary characters. You meet the Swordmaster, Carla, who eventually you do defeat and in some ways gain her respect, but not a whole lot. You meet Otis, who is a prisoner in the town of Melee Island. And you meet... Oh, he's there so little. What was his name? The Meat Hook? I am so... Yeah, Meat Hook. I'm amazed that you remember the other two names. I Did am you, a like, star. Did you, like, prepare yourself? Um, I feel like, actually, uh, whenever I reloaded the game, I was about... I was about two and a half hours in, about the time uh-huh. when I realized how to get to the rest of the map. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it was very natural for me to be reminded of those two names. The third guy is named Meat Hook, though, correct? Yeah, it's, it's Meat Hook. Meat Hook, who is the muscular, yet somewhat uh, easily terrified pirate who lives on the island that you befriend. There's a few other characters, but those are the most important guys. After you complete your trials, miraculously, LeChuck knows that it is time to act. And he steals the governor, Governor Marley, from the island. And everything is thrown into chaos. The pirates leave the island or hide in some way. And everything becomes darker and sadder. And you know what you must do. You must go and save the damsel. You must go save Governor Marley. To do that, though, you have to get a boat. And you have to get a crew. Well, your three friends, Otis, Carla, and Meat Hook, join your crew. And you set sail on the only ship that has ever made it to LeChuck's uh, realm? Roost? To Monkey Island. Monkey Island. The Black Pearl. Yes. This effectively ends the first part of the game. <laughs> Which sounds like That's a lot. That's part one. Yeah. And it is. In the second part, you are trying to find your way to Monkey Island. And it's not very easy. It's not something that you actually have a map to. It's something that you need to use voodoo magic to get to. It's actually a pretty short section, but with zero help from your crew, who has become belligerent, you have to figure out the, the, the right recipe for creating like a potion to get you to Monkey Island. And then after you do that, you enter part three of the game. You arrive at Monkey Island, and it's huge. It's a lot bigger than Melee Island. You have a lot less direction about where to go, but you soon figure out that there are two other inhabitants of this island, aside from LeChuck, who is kind of beneath the island in the, in the lava flows of hell. It is literally hell, right? They, they actually call it hell in the game. Yeah. The other inhabitants are the cannibals of Monkey Island, who really aren't that bad. 
They're just, they're just kind of weird. And then the other inhabitant is the former owner of the ship that you took to get to the island. What was his name again? Uh, his name is Herman Toothrot. Toothrot. That's what it was. Who is essentially a crazy person who many years ago landed on the island, but instead of use his opportunity to escape, he sent a band of monkeys to crew the ship to get back to Malay Island. And he stayed behind waiting to be rescued by the ship of monkeys. Which is a testament to how gone his mind is. <laughs> Ultimately, you have to use these, these two other inhabitants, the cannibals and Tooth Rot, to finagle your way down into the depths of hell to uh what's the word rescue uh yeah rescue governor marley obviously by the time you get down there everything has changed and she and lechuck have whisked off back to melee island for where where he plans to wed her and at the very last second you storm into the chapel and and declare that you are there to save her only to find out that she has actually saved herself by putting monkeys in the wedding dress instead of her and she jumps down from the ceiling and starts the melee you ultimately defeat lechuck by throwing what was it on him again you spray root beer on him you spray root beer on him and he vanishes, and the day is saved. I feel as though, especially towards the end, I might have missed a few things. But that is the gist of how the story goes. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty much accurate. And to put, I, I guess, in perspective, you talked about four different parts of the game. Uh, yes. They are not necessarily equivalent length. So as you're playing the game and you're saving it, there's a little game completed progression meter in percentage that goes up as you play, but it's it's not like linearly proportional to how much time you spend, which is kind of, I don't know, I think it gives players the wrong impression. I'll just say that. Yeah, it definitely um, gave me the wrong impression. Because out of a speed run of Secret of Monkey Island that took 55 minutes, about 35 minutes are spent in part one. And that's not because part one has like a lot of you know unskippable content. It's just because part one is so long. It's about two thirds of the whole game. Um, yeah. With part three being most of the other third of the game, and parts two and four each taking only a few minutes apiece. Um, very very short and small pieces of the game. So it's it's really heavy in the initial stage, and then kind of weans off towards the end of the game kind of interesting how little of the game is on monkey island <laughs> yeah very little actually let me ask you this the first time we talked you hadn't completed the game yes do you want to explain why you were unable to complete the game the first time i have already been made a fool i can do no worse so <laughs> this is has nothing to do with your foolishness i'll 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 explain Everything after the introduction to the cannibals, I have not played. 
And this is because when I arrived in their encampment, I arrived there to try to do the main thing that you need to do to reconcile Toothrot and the cannibals. And that is, I was trying to find Toothrot's banana picker, which is this huge set of hands, like a, like a mechanism that like claps hand, yeah, yeah, claps hands together to, to pick bananas off of trees. Through a convoluted set of events, the cannibals had it now, and I needed to take it back. During that process, you kind of enter the camp, and the cannibals catch you and imprison you. And I couldn't quite figure out what to do there, and as the game is designed to do, you go through some trial and error. So I kept leaving the camp and then coming right back to try something new, and about the third time I got thrown into their isolation room, my mouse disappeared. It was gone. I couldn't interact with anything, not even the main menu. I I did I have no idea <laughs> what to do about that. Um so I even by the way switched to the new graphical mode. Mouse was still not there either. It was some kind of glitch. And this is something that I actually looked up after after we talked last time. I only found one other person anywhere on the internet that says something similar <laughs> happened to them. And it was one of those classic, like, Yahoo Answers type, I've got a question here, and it was asked six years ago, and there are zero responses. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so nobody knows why this happens, which is, I think, a perfectly legitimate reason to not have completed the game the first yeah. time what's your excuse for the second time around um <laughs> uh, i i the reason that i say the first time was still my fault at least in part was because this is the first episode of the podcast. I still haven't gotten the hang of planning my time out for for setting up the game. So, man, Civ is a hell of a drug. Oh my god. <laughs> and, and there were a few situations where, like I was out of town this weekend, mm -hmm. it's easier to play Civ and still be social than it is to play a puzzle game. Mm -hmm. um, at least I can I can make that excuse. I do really wish that I had finished it for the discussion, but I feel like I got... I said this last recording. I got exactly what I wanted out of this game, at least to give my impressions. And that was the very early experience, and then a few glorious moments of point-and-click gameplay. So I do feel a little bit bad, but I think I can learn from it. And for the next for the next thing we do, I'll be a lot more prepared with it. So did you start a second playthrough at all? I think in the first recording I mentioned that I had, for some reason when I was trying to figure something out, I had one save that was about two and a half hours in. Oh, uh, okay. Which doesn't translate really to very far for how uh -huh. how 
confused I was. Um, <laughs> but in the second playthrough, I put in another hour and a half, I think, and I got, I got to the point where Governor Marley was uh, kidnapped, and I got to experience my favorite part of the game again. So that was good. It's amazing how fast the the game can go by whenever you know what to do. Yeah. What was your favorite part of the game? So, I think that you agreed on this too, but things might have changed from last time. The mechanism for sword fighting in the game was the coolest thing I think I've ever seen in, well, a, a storytelling context in video games. Obviously, pirates will sword fight because they have swords and they have grog. Therefore, they settle things with, with a sword fight. And the secret of Monkey Island is no different from that. However, it is a point-and-click adventure game. So they had to come up with a way to make sword fighting actually work with the medium. And I think they did it brilliantly. So because Monkey Island is, is kind of self-aware... Instead of having you actually swashbuckle with enemy pirates and, and cut them in half to defeat them, what's mightier than the sword is the pen, of course, and yeah. what's mightier than the pen is the spoken word. By sword fighting, what you're actually doing is spending time hurling insults at one another until one of your, you or your enemy's pride is so badly wounded that you have to give up in, in defeat and resign yourself. And the way that this works is whenever you pay for, for sword fighting lessons in the game, the instructor teaches you two basic insults and then the, the retorts to those insults. So the game, the sword fighting works on an insult and then a, a retort. And when you bump into pirates that are just out walking around in the world yeah. in your sword fighting, you take turns. Uh, insulting, and then using a comeback against the insult. And if it's an insult you've never heard before, then, uh, or an insult that you've never heard the comeback to before, then you don't know the comeback, so you can't uh, gain back the initiative in the fight. It kind of puts you on the ropes. Whereas mm -hmm. if you say an insult and the other pirate doesn't know the comeback, then you kind of take the initiative. And so the way the game teaches you how to sword fight is the player learns, kind of as Guybrush learns, all of these different insults and the different comebacks that go with them. So you go to a pirate, he says an insult to you you've never heard before, you can now use that insult on the next pirate. And it's interesting because the, you kind of hope that the next pirate knows the comebacks, that way you can learn it. Yep. So you fight these pirates over time, and you amass in the, the dialogue box during a sword fight many insults and many comebacks. Um, by the end of which, I think you, you feel pretty accomplished as a spoken word sword fighter. Yep. The It's a system that is designed to, to build yourself up through the actual mechanics of the game in a way that I thought impossible with a point-and-click adventure i feel like a lot of rpgs and things will put these behind levels or like progressions 
mm-hmm. but this game makes it so that way you are actually learning the moves, if you will, mm-hmm. perfectly in line with the gameplay. As you learn them, they're available to mm-hmm. you. So whenever you actually feel pretty good fighting random pirates, how does the, f- the sword fight actually go with the sword master? I think that's a rhetorical question, because you know the answer. <laughs> I do. And you just want to eat more gummy bears, You heard don't you? my rustling, didn't you? <laughs> I heard the rustle. I can explain. So the way that it works then, by the time you feel ready to challenge the Swordmaster, because there are many different insults and many different comebacks, a pirate, as you're fighting, whenever you win, they'll say things like, oh my gosh, you're so strong and whatever, and they'll praise you when you win. After a certain point, they'll start saying things like, oh my gosh, you're stronger than the Swordmaster of Melee Island. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, as we talked about before, your signposting, that's your cue that you've learned enough insults and comebacks that it's time to go fight the Swordmaster. So you head to, to fight the Swordmaster, and she uses insults on you that no pirate knows on the whole island. But thematically, your comebacks still fall in line with those insults. So she'll say something like, I'm going to milk every last drop of blood out of your body. And you already know a comeback that fits that line, even though you've never used the comeback on that specific line before. So you say back to her, that's perfect because you fight like a cow, which is an insult that, you you know, you've you've associated that comeback with a different insult before. So it's kind of a a puzzle of trying to, to read between the lines of what she's saying and what insults fit as a possible response yeah. i feel like they could have even had they needed to they could have ex- they could have kept going with us with a, another pirate that you would have had to defeat with an entirely different set of insults um and it and it could have kept mm-hmm. it could have kept going it, it works so well afterwards you get your t-shirt and you feel like you're a legit pirate what does the t-shirt say on it? I think I think it just says I've defeated the Swordmaster of Melee Island. <laughs> oh, it's the treasure of Monkey Island that's the other t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. You get two t-shirts, which they're both jokes on each other because you can play those sections in any order. And if you dig up the treasure first and you get the t-shirt, you're like, oh, thanks. That's that's great. I get a t-shirt. And then you defeat the Swordmaster and you get another t-shirt and you're like, seriously, game? Or you could do the inverse in it and you get the same response. I think the the treasure, the t-shirt that you find says something along the lines of, I was looking for the lost treasure of Melee Island and all I got was this shirt. Yeah. It's one of those. One of those guys. One of those aware 90s jokes. Exactly. And then the the treasure or the idol in the governor's mansion you get is just a basically a wooden doorstop <laughs> or like a paperweight or something like it's it's useless three very insignificant things that somehow qualify you to be a pirate if you bring them to the pirate leaders but by the time you get back of course they're they're gone because mm-hmm. i actually don't remember why they're gone they... did they all run away 
I think they were scared off by LeChuck, yeah. Because they, they, okay. they were all fearful of his presence because he's an actual good pirate. <laughs> so that's the part of the game that you liked. Yeah, I really Obviously, the, you got stuck later in the game, which I imagine was an unpleasant experience. But were there any other puzzles that you didn't enjoy or you didn't have as good of a time with? Hmm. Hmm. I think that I didn't get to fully explore um, Monkey Island as much. I didn't get to fully... I didn't get to, like, figure out all the things as well as I would have liked to. Which I think is another important thing that I should say. I, I got through a lot of sections not relying on the hint system that was added to the remastered edition, but using it to help confirm that I was going in the right direction. And we talked about this a lot, but I think that I would have had a more fulfilling time with the Monkey Island puzzles if that system wasn't there, if I just had to keep experimenting and keep exploring. Hmm. So you kind of use the hint system as a more explicit version of signposting. Yes, exactly. That video actually helps. Good. I just randomly chose the first video that came up on YouTube, <laughs> but I'm glad that was the one that applied to this conversation. Perfect. Um, wh why do you feel like your experience would have been richer? And if your experience would have been richer, why didn't you stop using the hint system? I think that I was... I was... Um, I was trying to make sure that I could get as far as I could. I also just was getting used to the mechanics. It's some, the way that I do a lot of things in life, you can probably attest to this is I like to try to dive in to things and I'll take advantage of almost every tool that there is to be as successful as possible with it. Within reason. Mm -hmm. In the case of these point-and-click adventure games, it seems that I like to just click a lot. I like to explore a lot of the the screen and the, the spaces. And that can sometimes lead to me being not really sure about where to go. Because if if my brain is thinking about several different possibilities as the the solution or the direction that I need to be going in the game... I can mm -hmm. I can get myself lost or not necessarily lost but like unfocused and I feel like the hint system helps me refocus myself. Mm. Because as I demonstrated before, it's easy for me to misclick something and then get stuck for 3 hours somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one. All this to say I think that the Monkey Island segments would have been cooler. And as I keep playing through the game after this recording, I think will be cooler with me try like taking it easy, not using the hint system as much, and just trying to solve the puzzles myself. The hint system, as far as, as, far as that can go in a game, I think they did a pretty good job with it. Um, yeah. Because you, you press the H button and you get a little text pop-up that kind of gives you a clue about 
what you should be doing next. And that could be the first time you press it, it's something pretty vague. Kind of just like a reminder of what the last person told you you need to be doing. Yeah. Uh, like, you need to be getting a crew together. Like, oh, okay. Maybe if you were just wandering around and you got lost and you forgot what you're doing and you can't remember who to talk to, pressing H once doesn't really provide much in the way of extra information. Yeah. Then if you press it again, it gets a little bit more specific. It says things like, you know, maybe go talk to the Swordmaster and see if she'll join your crew. And so it kind of like, as you press H more and more and more, the game goes from giving you a broad hint like it did originally in the dialogue to go to this place and click on this thing. Um, and that's, I'm guessing, if you get really stuck, why they did that. To keep people moving. Yeah, it keeps you going. It, it prevents you from, I guess this is their way of easing the difficulty curve for players who are less experienced, right? Is if you just don't know what to do, you can hit the H button until you've got a re relatively good idea of what to do. There was, I am not ashamed to say, <laughs> a time where I pressed the H button all the way until it told me exactly what to do. Was this for the fish? This is for the fish. What is the fish? What is What does it do? The fish, specifically, is a red herring. In the literary sense? Or... In the literal sense. <laughs> And in the literary sense. So, in, in you. In order to get to the guy who's going to give you sword lessons to teach you how to sword fight and defeat the swords master, you have to cross a bridge. And of course, there's a troll at the bridge. And when you bump into the troll, he gives you a riddle. He says, I want you to bring me something that will attract attention, but have no real importance. Right? And so. You, the player, are thinking like, okay, well, you know, he wants something that's that seems important but is kind of useless. And there are some good candidate items that you'll find. Mm -hmm. um, one of which is like meeting minutes yeah. that some pirates in, in Melee Island are trying to give away. And they, they talk about how, you know, it's for this important pirate meeting, but they just can't give these things away because nobody wants them because they're worthless. And so you think, oh, maybe it's the meeting minutes. Uh, it's not those. I thought it was um, the rubber chicken for a bit. There's a rubber chicken on a pulley. That maybe that's something that's weird and people want to look at because it's strange, and, but isn't important. Uh, but it's not the rubber chicken. It's a fish that is in the very beginning of the game. In the scum bar, whenever you go in, you talk to all the pirates. There's a, a room behind that the chef is cooking in. Um, and when he goes out, you can sneak back into the kitchen. And in the kitchen is everything that you need to complete Act 1 of The Secret of Monkey Island. It's, the, it's all the items that kind of unlock the three different branching pathways. You get a piece of meat that you later on spike with some uh, flowers to put some dogs to sleep so you can enter the governor's mansion and steal the idol. You get a pot that you can put on your head so that way you can get fired out of a cannon so that way you can get paid that way you can use the uh money to buy a shovel and a sword yep to go dig up the lost treasure of melee island and 
to pay for sword fighting lessons and have a sword to fight with. And there is a fish that you use to give to the troll to get across the bridge to get to the blah blah blah, like I've already said, right? So, I have played this game before we did this episode. Mm -hmm. About three-ish years ago? Two and a half-ish years ago? Not that long ago. And the first time I played this game, the only thing that gave me any trouble was this fish. (laughs) Because when you go to grab it, there's a seagull that it's flying around it, and it pecks at your hand, and you can't pick the fish up. It's just sitting out on this dock on the right-hand side of the screen, just laying there, and there's a seagull flying around. So you're thinking, like, how do I get this seagull <laughs> off of this fish so I can pick it up? It's very clear what you have to do. But there's, there's no guidelines about how to do it. Literally nothing. With the meat, you can just pick it up. Mm-hmm. With the pot, you can just pick it up. With the fish, you click on it and you click on it. You're like, okay, maybe I gotta click on the bird. Maybe I gotta find something to shoo the bird away. Like, you find some rat repellent later. You're like, oh, maybe I'll use the rat repellent on the bird. Nope. There's no <laughs> clever like seagulls or the rats of the sky metaphor going on here. The answer is not an in like a an actionable part of the screen it is just a passive part of the screen correct yeah this is the downside of some adventure game puzzles uh it's what's referred to as pixel hunting (laughs) and this is when you have to find like the exact right place to click on the screen uh to do the thing that you you need to do and there's no clues that lead you to that part of the screen so in this case what I found out two and a half years ago, after a few hours of being stuck on this, was that you had to go walk to the end of the dock where there is nothing interactive and stand on a certain plank that's loose. And that will smack the bird <laughs> off of the fish and you can walk over and pick it up. Smack. Now this is, uh, this is so unintuitive that even after I spent three hours, two and a half years ago, learning this, I forgot it (laughs) when I sat down to play the game again this time. And this is where I spent about 30 minutes and I went mad and I used the hint system all the way to the very end because the first hint was like, you need to go get sword lessons. Like, I know that. (laughs) Well, to get sword lessons, you got to get past the troll. I know that. It's like you have to give something to the troll. Yes, what is it? You got to give the red fish to the troll. I know. How do I get the bird off of the fish? And it got to the point where the hint was go to the kitchen. So I go to the kitchen. Fine. Here I am. I'm at the kitchen. And then the hint is go stand on the edge of the dock. It will knock the bird up and you can grab the fish. And I just, uh, I had to stop playing. Oh, no. <laughs> you had to walk away for a bit. I had to walk away from the game for the night. <sighs> yeah. the I think that the remaster people realize this was a very difficult part of the game for some people to, to navigate through. 
because it's not very intuitive. I'm glad that they put that little thing in there just to like make it sane, make it that way. If push comes to shove, it will tell you this this thing. The designers kind of messed up with it. (laughs) Here's the answer. (laughs) Yeah, and it's infuriating because it's a case where like you have a very clear goal. Yeah. Of what to do. Very clear. And there is no signposting and there is no feedback. There's no way that the game tells you, the player, you're doing the right thing or you're doing the wrong thing. You're getting closer, you're getting further with this fish. Absolutely, like, the probably the biggest mistake in the game, I would say, from a design point of view. Yeah. Something that the video that you showed me actually suggested was there's a few games that actually have several ways to solve the puzzle. Mm-hmm. I think I would have accepted this at as like you could use the sword to bat the bird away or something as an alternative mm-hmm. because I agree this is one of the 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 oddest choices they've made. Yeah, or like another thing that I think they suggest in the video is give more clues about what's interactive on the screen. Yeah. Like, label them. Some games will, like, yeah, they'll label them or they'll highlight them if you press a button to show you that, yes, if you come, if you click on this, something will happen, which would have been immediately helpful to know, oh, that's a that's an interactive thing. I can go click on and see what it does. Yeah. There are many ways to solve this problem. They kind of solved it with the hint system, I agree, but if you're very principled and you really don't want to use hints, it's not a super satisfying resolution to the puzzle. Yeah. Like I was saying, it's a lot more satisfying to get through something if you if you let the gears turn in your head. That being said, though, we can bury the red herring for for a time. Let the feelings die. Yes. I want to ask you, what did you think was the highlight of the game for you? Because you picked this game first. You played it before... You knew that you wanted me to experience it and give my impressions, but I want to kind of know what was it that that really made you want to talk about this game today? Well, I think, like you said, one of the things is I really I wanted you to play the game just because I think it is a bit different than a lot of games you've played. I thought there was a high likelihood that you would at least enjoy it. Yeah. So that was that was a factor. There was some amount of consideration. And I hope you remember this whenever I choose something more antagonistic of your interest in the future. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That I was merciful at least one time. Oh boy, I can smell the end of this podcast already. (laughs) (laughs) The other, I guess, reason why I really wanted to replay this game uh, and, and to talk about it on, on the show is it's a game that's got some really good history to it. It's really well designed. Uh, it's just so much fun to play. It's a game that kind of like, you know, people talk about The Little Prince yeah, as a, as a book that you can go back and reread at many points in your life and it's going to be good for a different reason every time. I kind of feel that way about The Secret of Monkey Island, that you can go back and you can replay the game, and there's going to be different things that stand out to you that are funny or that are novel, 
or uh, that that are are showing you a new side of 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 what the game's trying to talk about. I think has a really good, healthy year over year replayability because you come back to the game as a different person. So that's that's another reason why I wanted to play it was to maybe put it in a different context in my life um, from the first time I experienced it. Wow, that's actually that's a really good reason. That's better than what you said last time. I don't remember what I said last time, so I'll take your word for it. I don't remember very much either, but I I I think that comparing it to a Little Prince is actually uh, it's actually a a really easy thing for me to relate to. Not that I necessarily read the Little Prince, but uh, this might surprise you. There's actually a a film version of the story. Mm-hmm. And of the Little Prince, yeah. And so that's actually how I've experienced it. But I could see all of the same, like, multiple points in life kind of, kind of hooks. Mm-hmm. Being a pirate is, is a childhood thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But then being able to, to experience that again as from an adult perspective and see, like, this is kind of some of the things that I valued. I valued freedom and adventure and fun and and humor. It's good to have that reminder. So that way you can try to you can try to value those things more and more even as you're an adult. So I can I can see that a lot. Well, and I think that like the circumstances of my life were pretty different whenever I I played this game before. Yeah. And so Part of going back and, and playing it again was to see, like, were the positive feelings that I had towards this game kind of conflated with my life at the time, or were they really truly about the game? And I can say that, you know, coming away from it this time, it was definitely the game itself is just, it's just wonderful. It's funny. It's interesting. It's, it's deep in the right ways and silly in the other right ways, and just, I think, overall... Whenever you're not searching for a fish, <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. Was there any specific parts that stood out to you that that really sold it for you? Well, my favorite thing, and maybe this is what I said the first time. I don't remember what I said the first time. I don't remember most of the things that I say. It's all a blur. It's a constant blur. But my favorite line in the game is it comes at the very end. It's one of the last things that you can say to Elaine whenever she basically asks you after you know you've defeated LeChuck you're celebrating because when you sprayed him with root beer his body explodes into fireworks over Melee Island <laughs> who knows why she says to you like Guybrush what have we basically what have we learned from this adventure and one of the options that I always choose is never spend more than $20 on a video game <laughs> And, and he says that, and Elaine just says, what's a video game? And he says, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> and then the game fades out to black. And I think that's just, it just kind of sums up the whole absurd experience of, of Monkey Island. Did we talk last time about neo-surrealism? Is, is that what this game is kind of a part of, too? Is that that whole movement? Tell me more. 
I, I've heard it described to me as like a revitalization of the most absurd parts of surrealism, but in our our new mediums, our digital mediums. In mm-hmm. in the 2010s, sur- neo surrealism is most memes on the internet. They are they okay. are like they're loathing or lamenting something about modern digital life through like talking about how lonely they are, how much they want to kill themselves. Like, but then sprinkled on like fantastical experiences. I wonder Hmm. if, if this is one of the early examples of this, but being manifested in video games where it's, it's not taking itself too seriously. It's, at the end, lampooning itself for being a a, a, a video game that, that at least tongue-in-cheek, the designers were like, it's not worth how much you paid for it. And then mm-hmm. at the beginning of the game, one of the pirates that is just like a side character pirate is actually trying to sell you the next game. Right. So- yeah, he's literally an advertisement for another game made by LucasArts. So it's, it's interesting you bring that up. Like, there's a there's another video that I'll link to. Yeah. In the show notes by a guy named Innuendo Studios, and his one of his points, and it's kind of a, an overall analysis of of Monkey Island, and he's got several videos about Monkey Island. All of them, I, I'd say, are pretty good. I've watched them all. I think they're all pretty good. But this one specifically, he talks a little bit more about the core theme. Yeah. What he thinks the core theme of the game is, and he thinks that the underpinning philosophy of the Secret of Monkey Island is nihilism. Yeah. Right. That the whole game. In essence, is a it's a problem with no solution needed. You could take Guybrush out of the game entirely, and nothing would change in the storyline. Right. LeChuck would still kidnap Governor Marley. Governor Marley would still outwit him at the wedding, and he still would be defeated by the end. Uh, yep. Guybrush is just he's just kind of there, right? Yeah. And I think that that the assertion. I think it's really hard to describe, or sorry, ascribe intent of creators. Yeah. Because I think sometimes themes are emergent. And so whether it's neo-surrealism or nihilism or what have you, I think like there's very few developers that will go into a game thinking that they have to imbue it with a certain specific philosophy and use it as kind of a treatsy on that philosophy. I think one of the designers that does that is Ken Levine, who's the guy behind Bioshock. Yeah. But I think that guy's like an auteur. He's a mastermind. He's insane. (laughs) And I would be very surprised if the guys who made Monkey Island were thinking about it that deeply. I like the word that you used earlier when you said lampooning. Because this game, in a lot of ways, to me, reminds me of, of like the National Lampoon movies, where mm. these are movies that are they're comedies and they are very, very genre aware. Um, so they make a lot of fun of themselves through making fun of the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Monkey Island's kind of unique because it was so early in the point-and-click adventure game landscape yet it was still able to lampoon itself and and 
make fun of the conventions that it itself is establishing. So I think, you know, that this game isn't necessarily post-surreal or, or nihilistic as a direct intention. I think that's more of the side effect. I think that's a byproduct of any kind of humor. Yeah. That humor itself is, is ultimately post-surreal or nihilistic, depending on, on the joke itself, right? If it's hmm, all of it. Yeah, I mean, I think you can read humor in that way. Um, but I think you can also read humor as it's, it's just kind of a joke, pointing fun at the absurdity of whatever situation uh, it has presented itself. And so whenever the situation is self-referential, maybe that's that's some uh, post-surrealism right there. When the, the situation is about your, your life or your motivation, maybe that's nihilism. But maybe whenever it's about, you know, a specific uh, item... Mm -hmm. then you could read that as being a joke or a commentary on materialism. I guess all I'm trying to say is you can really read into jokes however you want to. Okay, okay. I think I follow now. So, it's... The Secret of Monkey Island is a, is a good example to you of the creators putting themselves out there through humor and through breaking mm -hmm. the conventions a little bit. And letting the player really take from it what they want. And not in the same way as, like, the Vietnam Memorial is designed to have the, the viewers take from it what they want. But in a much more playful and light kind of way. Yeah, totally. So I think people that are more thoughtful and more, like, intellectual will try to find out what the ultimate philosophy behind monkey island is and i think a lot of people like me who just like silly things will yeah laugh at it and not not think twice about it fair enough works for me that means that i'm in the second camp <laughs> i was there for the fun and i'll stay for the fun i'll keep playing it and at my own pace i will complete it i'm glad that you enjoyed it as much as you did we had to kick off this series with a bang, and I think that The Secret of Monkey Island really did that for us, and we'll see exactly how successful we are with, well, not necessarily enjoying everything that we experience on the show, but at least how much we enjoy talking about it, which I guess brings us to what we're going to do for the next episode. Yes, it does. We have already, well, I, I guess, have already revealed what the next topic is. So yep. maybe be just because I want to hear you say it. No. <laughs> how about you? I, I want to prolong this for a little bit. How about you explain how this is normally going to work? Sure. So <laughs> both of us are curating our own sets of movies, video games, TV shows, books, board games, flags, what have you, that we want to experience and then talk about during these Not episodes flags. of the show. There'll probably be a flag. Not flags. There'll probably be at least one flag. Maybe. Um, if, it's, if we're going to do a flag show, it's got to be a whole group of flags. But anyway, continue. Anyway, even though we're curating this list of things, we're going to still 
insert in a, a little bit of randomness. And so far, we've been putting that in by rolling a die and using that to kind of pick the genre of thing that we're going to do. So pick between, are we going to do some movie? Are we going to do some TV show, etc.? And then from there... For the next episode. Yeah. And then from there, whoever's turn it is will then put forth something from their list that's in that genre. And uh, currently we're picking between four genres of things. We've got movies. We've got some books. We got some video games. And we got some TV shows. And there's a good chance that we'll take a look at other genres in the future but this is what we got for now and last time we uh rolled the die and it landed on movie so the next thing we're going to talk about is a movie and that movie is i think that's enough yeah i think that's enough there we can go ahead and wrap up the episode now (laughs) i think that there's at least one other person in this world who will not let you get away with that (laughs) The movie that Daniel chose for us to watch for the next episode is Gravity. (sighs) This is the space thriller with George Clooney and Sandra Bullock that I have wanted to watch for years and then not wanted to watch for years. That's not hyperbole either. It's literally been years. <laughs> Shall we say that it was a disagreement between you and a friend of ours and leave it at that that caused... It's a purely ideological struggle. <laughs> right. This is about negotiating with terrorists. Luckily for you, you didn't have to negotiate with the terrorist, but instead let a third party... I have been tricked by a third party into compromising my integrity, and I want this to go on record, that I am not doing this of my own volition, but that I'm doing it for the good of the show. I, uh, I'll just edit that part out. At least from my perspective, I actually have really wanted to watch this show too, but was somewhat caught up in the, the struggle peripherally for a while, and because my dear wife is not the the biggest fan of of sitting around watching a long movie <laughs> i haven't i haven't made the time to watch mm-hmm. it myself so so you haven't seen it either i have not seen it either which is another part of the experiment i mm-hmm. feel i also i'm really interested in early on establishing if it's going to work at all for us to see things that neither or do things that neither of us have done before mm-hmm. and this is a this is a perfect opportunity to do that, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think it'll be a good experiment. Despite all of my misgivings around the situation. <laughs> perfect. Uh, anything else that you wanted to say about Gravity, The Secret of Monkey Island, our show, Res? I think we sat down before this and said... Maybe re-recording isn't going to go so well. Right? We've already talked about this thing once. Yeah. Talking about it again, we're probably going to retread all the same ground and prompt each other and know too much about each other's opinions to have an interesting discussion. And by Joe, I think we still had a good talk. So I'm happy 
about our discussion. I'm really thankful that you were able to take the time to talk. Yeah. And that we were able to explore more about Monkey Island adventure games, our childhood <laughs> dreams and aspirations, post-surrealism. I'm glad that we we had this talk. I'm really looking forward to the next episode. So, that's my closing thoughts. I had a good time. I, too, actually was really surprised at how well everything went. I look forward to seeing your impressions from Gravity, and I am extremely thankful for getting to sit down, talk about The Secret of Monkey Island with you, and also to play it in the first place. So, with that being said, thank you all for listening. This has been Rez with me, Daniel, and my good friend, Riley. See you next time. Bye. Yep, I'm going to save too, so... Uh... Stop.